0: 2004. The Monk Museum in Oslo, Norway, an institution dedicated to the legacy of the country's most famous artist, Edvard Monk, and holding more than half of his life's output of paintings, including two of his most famous, The Scream and Madonna, becomes the victim of a brazen theft. Authorities say two or three armed masked men burst into the Monk Museum in Oslo in broad daylight and took the paintings as visitors watched. Both works are by Edward Monk, including his masterpiece, The Scream. A photo taken by a witness outside the museum appears to show the robbers walking to a getaway car with the paintings in hand. Masked gunmen ordered the museum guards to the floor and snapped the cable on which these two paintings, emblemic of the dark, psychologically probing style of Monk, an influential expressionist painter working in the late 19th and early 20th century, hung. The Scream, especially, is universally known today. So well-known is it, in fact, that it completely transcends the fame of any of the artist's other known works. It would be another two years before these works would be recovered, slightly damaged but returned in overall integrity intact to the museum's walls in May of 2008. And, as the news clip mentions, this was not the first time thieves had targeted the screen. My name is Nanagan Gadze, and welcome to episode 3 of the Art Crime Cast. So, about the imagery of the work itself. You've seen it everywhere and anywhere. If you are not particularly art inclined, it may be one of the few artworks that you can identify and name instantly, one you've known probably as long as you can remember. You probably encountered the dark, captivating figure on the bridge with eyes and nose flared in fear quite young, in a grade school art class perhaps, Or, or maybe from simply its ubiquity, how often it appears in commercial objects or in popular imagery. Maybe on a t-shirt, a coffee mug, tote bag, keychain, or as an inflatable desk toy. No doubt you've encountered one of the million and a half instances in which it has been appropriated, caricatured, or parodied at some point. It is an image that it is not an exaggeration to say is universally known and recognized, transcending its status as an artwork to begin with, perhaps second only to the Mona Lisa in its ubiquity. Its title, too, can be instantly recalled from one glance at the image itself. You're picturing it in your head right now and don't even need a reference image to do so. So ingrained is it in our cult- collective cultural consciousness. This is The Scream. But the title does not actually refer to a single work. While we may refer to this famous image of a mysterious howling figure as The Scream, that was neither its original title nor does it refer to a single artwork. In fact, there are four screams created by the artist in two different mediums between the years 1893 and 1910. He also made a lithograph print version in 1895. Monk's title in its original full length and German is De Schrei de Natur, the scream of nature. And excuse my awful German pronunciation in other parts of this episode. I am trying my best. These facts are fairly important if you think about it. But they, as about anything else about Monk other than his status as the creator of these works, is barely known by anyone other than those who have studied the work explicitly. In this episode, I will explore the history and wild popularity of the Four Screams, and consider the rather broad question of why it is these works by an otherwise lesser known modern artist. Why is the Scream the modern Mona Lisa? As part of this, I will delve into the story of the artist, one of Norway's most famous sons and definitely its most famous artist. His difficult life and powerful artistic output truly make him one of the prime examples of history's tortured artists. And of course, I will discuss the two infamous thefts of these works. They were big, bold crimes. One involved an unforgivably simple nighttime break-in and a note left by the perpetrators that read, thanks for the poor security, along with stings, false identities, and suitcases full of cash. In the previously explored other, a decade later, Masked gunmen stored a museum in broad daylight and escaped in the getaway car while bystanders shot photographs. These are also the relatively rare cases of world-famous, iconic paintings being stolen. The motivations for stealing such works are themselves unique. I will go over each sensational case and show that these thefts are good case studies for these types of brazen, brazen, nefarious crimes and the miraculous ways that priceless artwork can be recovered despite the odds. As always, find all the images and clips from this podcast on the pod blog, theartcrimecast.wordpress.com. Additionally, if you would like a closer look at the 1994 theft, I recommend the book The Rescue Artist, The True Story of Art, Thieves, and the Hunt for a Missing Masterpiece by Edward Dolnick. Let us return to the works themselves. Each work was done by Monk on cardboard and have almost identical compositions. Two are done in the medium of pastel, which is like a thicker, oilier version of crayon. These versions have the brightest colors and the loosest handling of line. One of these versions, the first from 1893, is currently in Oslo's National Gallery. Another, the 1895 version, is the only one in private hands. It made headlines in 2012 when it was sold in auction at Sotheby's for nearly $120 million to American financier Leon Black. At the time, it was the highest price paid for a painting at auction and certainly an art world splash. So rarely rarely does a work that is a definitive world-famous masterpiece hit the auction block. The current highest price paid for an auction painting, for those curious, is $181 million for Picasso's Les Femmes d'Alger in 2015. However, six paintings have sold for more in private sales. Then there are the painted versions of The Scream, in oil and temper paint on cardboard. The 1893 version, which was stolen almost exactly 100 years after its creation in 1994, is probably the most widely known version, with the most emphasis on the figure's haunting expression and the most texture in its paint application. Splatters of candle wax from the artist's day can be seen on its right side. This is partially how the detective in the 1994 case was able to make sure that the work he was negotiating the return of in a sting operation was the genuine article, but more about that later. The other painted version, the last from 1910, features the smoothest lines, but the faintest coloring in the eyes, which gives the main figure a more skeletal appearance. The composition of the scream is simple, but powerful. The strong diagonal of the bridge that cuts across the organic, harmonious waving lines that make up the navy river and the red and orange sunset sky in the background of the work draw one's eye directly to the figure. Perhaps it also shows the contrast between the awesome power of nature, the sky and the river, and the creation of man, the bridge. The figure itself stands apart from the two other figures some paces back, who are nothing but except vaguely human-shaped black blobs. Are they walking toward the screaming figure, or away? Are they meant to represent specific people, or is their faceless abstraction supposed to emphasize the personal, internal pain of the screamer, which they will never truly understand? I refer to the figure as it because it really seems to have, bear no defining characteristics of gender. In fact, it looks almost specter-like, with its wavy body clad in a black cover-all garment. An entry in Monk's diary from January 2nd, 1892, the year before he created this work, seems to provide evidence that it is based on a real event. I was walking along the road with two friends. The sun went down, Monk wrote. I felt a gust of melancholy. Suddenly the sky turned a bloody red. I stopped, leaned against the railing, tired to death as the flaming skies hung like blood and soared over the blue-black fjord in the city. My friends went on, I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I felt a vast, infinite scream through nature." Later, he wrote that he was being stretched to the limit, nature was screaming in his blood. He was at his breaking point. There, along with some idea of the artist's dramatic psyche, we can find the original title, The Scream of Nature. So. Given that Monk describes the feeling of a scream rather than one he actually lets out, the figure seems to represent Monk's internal angst rather than himself directly. Therefore, the figure can truly have or lack any number of normal human characteristics. It is the internal scream, the expression of existential despair. Monk wrote once of his aim in art, to depict his deepest emotions, his soul, his sorrows, and joys. This is the primary aim of expressionist art to show the inside by way of the outside. One could argue all people, at some point or another, can empathize with the emotion expressed in the scream, but it is for sure that Monk had much to scream about. Death, mental illness, sickliness, and isolation blighted his life. His mother died when he was five, and his sister when he was fifteen both of tuberculosis. His father was a doctor and a believer in a rather dark strain of Christianity that emphasized the evidence of death and hell. Young Monk was small and often ill, suffering from panic attacks and general nervousness, growing up in an often lonely, unhappy home. In another diary entry, he wrote about his family's history of illness, physical and mental. I inherited two of mankind's most frightful enemies, the heritage of consumption and insanity, Illness and Madness and Death Were the Black Angels That Stood by My Cradle." Later he went to Paris and Germany where he began to paint obsessively, including a 22 work series called The Freeze of Life. This dark series, which features works that at times evoke the styles of Art Nouveau, Symbolism, and Post-Impressionism, explores such topics as alienation, death, and sex. The titles further revealed the themes. They include melancholy, jealousy, despair, anxiety, and of course, the scream. One work, Self-Portrait with a Cigarette, is a portrait, a more realistic depiction of the artist's physicality, more grounded in reality. Yet the edges around the figure of Monk, that is the sole subject of the painting fade out in abstract blacks and blues. Monk stands, dramatically lit, emerging from a rough-hewn abyss, truly what could be the illustration in a dictionary of tropes under the heading of Tortured Artist. Does does it surprise you to learn that Monk struggled his whole life with alcoholism and unhealthy relationships? The series was either a fresh, inspired view on the dark side of humanity in a solidly modern style, or crude, unfinished, and vulgar daubs that it is a bad joke to call art, depending on who you asked. In either case, the works made in this period are his most probing psychological and intense. They were hugely influential for the expressionist-modernist movement in Germany that began in the early 20th century. As Munch did, artists of this movement wanted to present reality subjective and distorted by emotion. They shunned objectivity and realism for the expressive power of rough, heavy brushstrokes, distorted figures, and unnatural colors. Many evoke the look of woodcuts or are done in the medium. It was a medium that Munch himself embraced. Artistic groups like Der Bleu Reiter and Die Brucke The Blue Rider, and The Bridge, operated in the first few decades of the 20th century. Many of their artists went to fight in the First World War and came back suffering from the traumas they faced there. They shared in the worldwide feeling of horror at the power of mechanical war combined with human tactical ability, along with the general disillusionment and confusion with old systems and orthodoxies that seemed ill-equipped to deal with a newer, more anonymous, and frightening world. This was the era of Nietzsche's God is Dead, And Monk's The Scream is a perfect representation of the terrifying crossroads or precipice many felt humanity was at. All there was left to do was scream. In either case, whilst the German expressionists who he influenced were getting busy working at the edge of the avant-garde, Monk suffered a debilitating mental breakdown in 1908 at the age of 45 and checked into an institution. After some months of therapy and alcohol reduction, he left re-energized for his birthplace in Norway. His works that follow this period are much less dark, reflective of a desire to look on the bright side of things. Fame, fortune, and the status as a national artist of Norway came too. Even given this, Munch chose isolation, which he found on an estate outside Oslo. There he lived mostly alone, never stopping working on his paintings that he called his children. When the Nazis took over in Germany, things were bleak for artists working in modernism, and monk's work fell prey to Hitler's rants and raves against the vulgarity and grotesqueness of the avant-garde. he was branded a degenerate artist, and over eighty of his works were removed from museums there. See the previous episode for more on a Nazi anti-modern art crusade. The Germans did invade Norway when monk was in his 70s and he feared his works would be taken from him. He died in 1944 at the age of seventy nine The city of Oslo was bequeathed the remainder of his work when he died monk who did a number of prominent mural commissions in Norway before his death, is the country's most famous artist and even appears on the 1,000-kroner note. The Monk Museum, devoted to his work, was opened in Oslo in 1960. It serves today as Monk's official estate. In 2004, it was robbed. Masked gunmen stored the museum on August 22nd of that year at around 11.10 a.m., brandishing guns and threatening, terrified museum-goers and guards. They took two works, and well-chosen ones in fact, the 1910 version of The Scream and Madonna from 1894. The latter is another one of Munch's most famous works. It depicts a nude female figure from the waist up, her arms tucked behind her back and shoulder and head tilted back in a pose that has, interpreted, has been interpreted as one of surrender or sexual or spiritual ecstasy. Her halo is bright crimson red and her hair long, black, tumbling around her bare shoulders, Hardly what we would associate with typical depictions of the Virgin Mary. It is disputed if this is meant to be some sort of inversion of traditional traits of the Virgin figure, or an expression of ideal or dangerously enticing female beauty and sexuality. Certainly, women often played the role of alluring femme fatales in Monk's dark works. In any case, it is a striking, haunting piece of art. The Value of these paintings was estimated to be near 100 million dollars, and things were looking bleak for a while. The frames were found ditched along with the thieves' stolen getaway car, and it was feared that the paintings had been destroyed or at least seriously damaged. The screams, as previously mentioned, were done on cardboard, making them extremely fragile. What the police were expecting to find was a ransom demand. Remember this from when I discussed the other theft case shortly. One does wonder why a thief would steal a trophy work, a work so famous and recognizable that selling it openly is just not possible. It is possible, of course, that such thieves steal these works as a show of their prowess, or more practically, to use as bargaining or trading chips in their criminal dealings. A certain degree of wishful thinking may also be involved, as thieves hope that a seller will miraculously appear, and they often do not. Stolen artworks often swiftly bounce from criminal to criminal after they are stolen, as they are used in deals, so it is not uncommon for works such as these to be recovered halfway across the world. However, trophy works, for all intents and purposes, are the most commonly art-napped. When a museum loses one of its prize pieces, it is understandable that they will often put up vast sums to get them back. While this may be a lot less than the market value of these works, the works are stolen, and it cannot be expected that the thieves would be able to get the full market value. A clean couple hundred thousand gotten quickly is a good incentive. Moreover, Norway is a small country, and Monk is THE national artist. The Scream and Madonna are not just artworks, they are sources of deep national pride. In any case, The monks eluded recovery for some time, even after suspects had been arrested and put on trial. Our award of 2 million kroner, or about $300,000, was offered in 2005 for information leading to the recovery with four suspects already in custody. The following year, six people were put on trial for committing or helping with the heist, and all pleaded not guilty. Half of them were convicted and got between four and eight years for their involvement, along with orders to pay the city of Oslo 750 million kroner, or about 117 million dollars in damages, the value of the works lost. And still lost they were. It was not till the end of August of that year that Norwegian authorities announced their recovery. They were gone for two years almost exactly. Police have not revealed specifics as to how the paintings were recovered, but no reward or ransom had been paid out, nor had those convicted helped in the recovery operation. Also positive was the news that there was a lot less damage to the works than had been expected. There were a few tears and holes in Madonna and some moisture damage to the Scream, but ultimately, the works were put on display in mostly repaired condition. Ten years prior, an 1893 version of the Scream was stolen from Oslo's National Gallery. Luckily, the details of the recovery operation in that case have not been kept as quiet as the information about the most recent theft recovery, and sensational as all get-out they are. A sting, false identities, brawls, close calls, and the criminals getting off of technicalities. It all began in the wee hours of the 12th of February, 1994. The sun was going to rise in a few hours on the opening of the 94 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. The country was ready to put on its best face, and in preparation, the work was moved down to the second floor to be closer to visitors. It was to be a crowd-pleasing blockbuster show to cater to them. This was mistake number one. Putting it closer to the street certainly increased the ease with which the work could be stolen. The second was to put it near a window and a window, did not, and a window that did not even have reinforced glass. Mistake three. It was glaringly poor security that the windows were just ordinary glass without metal bars. The museum said they did not think that thieves would climb through all the broken glass in an invasion. This was little in the way of an explanation for what was quickly deemed a nationwide embarrassment. Both the previously mentioned security mistakes were taken advantage of by the thieves. They rolled up shortly before 7 in the morning in a stolen car, climbed out, and hastily retrieved a ladder that they had stashed by the museum earlier. Though they were already caught on security cameras, a beleaguered night guard simply was not paying attention to the monitor. The criminals propped up their ladder to just under the window on the other side of which the scream hung. Only on a wire, not connected to a separate security system. This was certainly mistake number four on the museum's part. The criminal who entered got to the top of the ladder and promptly slipped off. We know all of this because, again, security cameras caught all of it. Nevertheless, he clambered back to the top and smashed the window with a hammer. The guard who disabled the alarm that promptly started to buzz turned it off, assuming it was false, without checking the screens. Again, shockingly irresponsible. The thieves removed the scream, about 2 by 3 feet, with a heavy frame and glass casing, leaned out the window, and dropped it down to his waiting companion. The whole removal had taken less than a minute, and the thieves raced off in their getaway car with one of the world's most valuable paintings in the, their back seat. after a hike so comically easy it is, also, it is almost amusing. The next alarm went off maybe 10 minutes later, a motion sensor triggered by the wind blowing into the broken window. The guard, who still had not noticed the screen that showed the ladder leaned up against the museum's outer wall, called his supervisor, who ordered him to alert the police. A squad car that was already driving around the area saw the ladder and the broken window and quickly raced up to assess the situation. One who climbed the ladder himself slipped off, and backup had to be called so that he could get driven to the hospital. The police then used the stairs to get to the compromised room. What they found were three things. One pair of wire cutters, one postcard, and one missing masterpiece. The postcard featured a painting of three men laughing boisterously in a cheery, cartoonish style. On the back, the themes had left their message. Thanks for the poor security. Extremely cheeky, if accurate. As the morning dawned, the museum authorities, faced with this tragic situation and PR nightmare, decided to get a screen poster that was for sale in the gift shop. They put it with its cheap frame in the place of the stolen original, along with a handwritten sign that read, STOLEN. In Norway, the investigation began, frustrating from its first moment. Security camera footage was too grainy to figure out many of the identifying details about the thieves, and there were no eyewitnesses. The press feasted with glee on the story, and this seemed like it was the thieves' intention. Hitting the museum when the entire world's eyes would be trained on Norway through its press was certainly made to make a laughing stock, was certainly meant to make a laughing stock out of someone. The Norwegian authorities were at a loss, careening around to look at, into many false tips, and troubled by the fact that the government would never allow a sizable amount of taxpayer money to be put up in exchange for the painting. Think of the precedent it would set. Similarly, the cash-strapped National Gallery could do little more than offer twenty thousand or so for the information. And the Scream was worth $70 million. Other players came onto the scene shortly, though. Because of a connection through a British, a known British art thief who claimed to be involved in the Scream theft and who had been in trouble in both Britain and Norway before, British police, Scotland Yard, ended up involved. On the case was the small, specialized division within the Serious and Organized Crime Unit, colloquially called the Art Squad, who specialized in crimes relating to arts and antiques. If you are wondering if it makes sense to have a whole unit even a tiny one whose membership was often just two to five operatives dedicates this work, consider again the magnitude of the international art crime market. It involves hundreds of millions of black market dollars and is closely tied to other more nefarious illegal enterprises like the running of guns and drugs. In the United States, the FBI's version of the squad is a rapid deployment division called the Art Crime Team, established in 2004, who work on cultural property crime. Their seal is circular, with their title on the outside rim and the acronym ACT, Art Crime Team, in the center. Behind it is a small collage of famous paintings and sculptures testifying to their work. Included is the screen. What the Scotland Yard operatives, led by experienced British-American art detective Charlie Hill, had to do was come up with a way in which they might retrieve the work. The typical method was a sting. One had to try to get the criminal out into the open, and more importantly, get the work out into the open. One could not just rush in, guns blazing. Nuance was nuance was necessary. Now, Hale and the art squad knew that the Norwegian government would refuse to pay a huge ransom, which everyone expected to be demanded shortly by the criminals because of the, pre- the precedent it would set up. The trick was to come up with some sort of sting and invent a character with big bucks to tempt the thieves. They wanted the character to be tied to some group or institution that the thieves would recognize was legit. It was one thing to tell someone that you had the money, but another to be connected to a group who everyone knew they did. Museums are not generally known for being such institutions, though. Many, including the Oslo National Gallery, are taxpayer-funded and perennially strapped for cash, and suspicious governments are reluctant to give more money. Such is not the case for some private museums, however, and in the 90s, no museum had money like the J. Paul Getty Museum in California. It was endowed with millions in funds left by its founder, after whom the museum is named. Getty was an oil billionaire, once the richest man in the world. Back in the 90s, the museum was associated with a wild spending on art acquisitions. So the sting began to formulate itself. The character, played by Hill, would be representing the Getty negotiating on behalf of the National Gallery. Basically, the Moneybags Museum in California would put up the ransom cash for the Oslo National Gallery in exchange for a loan of the work. Because of the cachet of the name Scotland Yard and the tragic loss to the art world that was the theft of a painting like The Scream, the Getty agreed to allow the sting operation and to help out with the creation of a cover identity for Hill. He would be Christopher Charles Roberts, an international art buyer, equipped with company credit cards bearing the name, a Getty ID, and doctored payroll and personnel records in the Getty's file to reflect his employment. Hill, in the meantime, prepared by steeping himself in the details of Monk's life and work that he could come across as a convincing art world operative, as well as to be able to make sure, if given the chance to examine the work, he would be able to tell if it was a genuine scream. The National Gallery had put out the announcement that it was accepting information about the works, and while there were a number of false leads, by April there was something promising. A cousin of the museum's board chairman was an art dealer named Inartor Ulving. Ulving had been contacted by one of his clients, an ex-con enforcer type, the sort of man hired to come and menace someone who owed money to the employer. This man got in touch with Olving and mentioning his relation to the board chairman said he knew some people who could arrange for the painting's return. It was a chain of people who knew people and Hill and the other authorities followed it to its end. In the meantime, a crime reporter for the Norwegian newspaper Dagbladet got a call from a frequent tipster who mentioned the scream. The reporter arranged to meet the tipster who claimed to be only a messenger, passing along some directions that would lead to evidence. The reporter took along a photographer, the National Gallery's chief restorer, and they sped off toward a town outside Oslo and finally found a bus stop that had been described by the informant. In the grass by the side of the road, a piece of wood a few inches long, the National Gallery restorer knew instantly that this was a genuine piece of the Scream's frame. The newspaper shouted the announcement from its front page the next day. So it seemed likely that the painting might still be in Norway, but without its protective frame it was dangerously vulnerable. Time was of the essence, and by May, Hill and authorities got in touch with, guy who, with the guy who knew a guy who knew a guy, Olving. Olving's suggestion for what to bring to the meetup in Oslo to discuss the negotiations? Half a million pounds cash. This came from Scotland Yard's cash reserves set aside just for these sort of purposes. To Oslo it was. Hill, as Chris Roberts, along with an associate posing as his bodyguard, met Olving and the man who had contacted Olving on the phone. His real name is not public, so I will just refer to him as The Con. Everyone shared some drinks and talked about art, each party clearly scoping the other one out, and it was agreed that the deal would go down the next day. Unfortunately, one the comical hitch kept that from happening. The Scandinavian Narcotics Officers' Annual Convention, of all things, was taking place in the hotel that day. Of course, having plainclothes police swarming around, one of which could have easily recognized Hill from his police work, was not exactly convenient for loosening up Olving and The Khan. Hill tried to keep them calm, eventually showing them the suitcase of cash, which hooked them in, but the con was shaken by the presence of all the police. He walked off, reappearing a few hours later, nervous. They all rendezvoused again in their hotel rooms, and Hill insisted that he had to see the work before the cash would be handed over. The groups parted for the evening, and Hill debriefed with the, with the associates at Scotland Yard. At that night, at almost midnight, Hill got a call from Oving. They wanted the deal to be done then. Hill's response Go fuck yourself! It would be done in the morning. No way was Chris Roberts going out an unholy hour with these men. Of course, that was purposeful. Hill was an experienced undercover negotiator, and he knew that it was dangerous to accommodate unreasonable demands of crooks. As Hill expected, Olving called again, insisting that he come down. Hill agreed reluctantly. Olving and the Khan wanted Hill to come with them to see the work, but Hill, as Roberts, claimed no way was he risking having a gun pulled on him. He'd be happy to see the work in the morning. To placate the Khan, who was suspicious of Hill, Hill suggested that he get him a room at the same hotel he was staying at that evening. It was agreed. Hill, his associate, and their boss at Scotland Yard talked on the phone afterward and agreed that the next day they'd go off with the suspicious pair. It was time to get the painting back once and for all. At 6 the next morning, the con called Hill and he and his associate slash purported bodyguard met the con and all got into Hill's rental car. They drove to a diner in a town south of Oslo. Olving was there with a frightening looking stranger. Unbeknownst to them, this stranger had slipped into Olving's car the previous night and forced him to allow him to stay and watch Olving the whole night in his house. This man was Gritadal, and Olving was clearly terrified. The men haggled tensely for a while about how to do the deal, and it was agreed that Hill's associate would drive back to the hotel with the con and Gritadal, and Chris Roberts, a.k.a. Hill, would accompany Olving to see the painting. If it checked out, Hill would call with the okay. The men would get their money, and Hill would get the painting. At the site where they were storing the artwork, Elving's summer home, Hill got to hold the painting and see pieces of the frame. His memorization of the candle wax drippings paid off, and he was sure it was the real thing. They drove off and stopped at the the hotel, where Hill called his boss with the updates, fading calling the bodyguard and okaying the money exchange. Elving left, and Hill held on to the masterpiece. He propped it up on the bed of the hotel room, barricaded the door, and waited. There was the scream, the 70 million dollar, century-old, iconic masterpiece of existential despair, in a little Norwegian hotel, miraculously unharmed. Meanwhile, in the Oslo Hotel, the other Scotland Yard detective, the one posing as, as Hill slash Roberts' bodyguard, waited with the con and gritted all. Time ticked by, and a knock came at the door. There had been a mix-up of information with the Norwegian police, two of whose members were now standing at the door with the money. They had thought that they'd find the detective there alone, given the money which he would give to the cons who would arrive later. The cops were there then to arrest them. Oops. A brawl then broke out between Grittedal and the cops. The detective and the con fled the scene. The detective's half-second devised plan was to let the con run himself into some of the police surrounding the hotel. Outrun by the con, the detective returned to the hotel room. The Norwegian cops had Grittedal pinned. In In the meantime, More police caught up with Hill at the hotel with the painting. It was over. The work was back in safe hands and nobody had gotten away with any money. It all sounds tied up quite neatly there, but it wasn't quite the end of the story. Hill and his associate did not get any public acclaim for helping get the painting back, though Scotland Yard did. Their mission had been a state secret. Meanwhile, the con had gone to the police with his details for a deal. The trial began two years after the painting was recovered. A former professional soccer player turned thief named Paul Enger was charged with masterminding the theft. The Khan and Gurtadal were charged with handling stolen goods. Gurtadal had done time with Enger uh, for the theft of another monk masterpiece, Vampire. There were guilty convictions doled out all around. Six years for Enger, almost five for Gurtadal, almost three for the Khan, and almost four to another young man, William Asheim, who was one of the, the ones who had done the physical theft, along with Enger. They all appealed, and in the shocking twist, all but Anger, the mastermind, were set free on the grounds that the Scotland Yard's detective t- detectives' testimony was inadmissible because they had entered the country under false names. Today, Anger remains in Norway, proclaiming his innocence, Gutadal was also there, partaking in reportedly nefarious activities, the khan is dead of an overdose, and Asaheim was murdered. Charlie Hill continues his work as an art crime investigator. Luckily, and for now, All the screams are safe hanging back on their respective walls, captivating lookers-on with their gaunt expressions and haunting, endless landscapes. So we return once again to the images themselves. One does wonder why the rest of Monk's output is not nearly as popular as this image. A possible explanation is somewhat crude yet understandable. Monk's artwork is dark. The sick, the dying, the jealous, the anxious, these are the characters who inhibit Monk's paintings, done in wavy, melancholy brushstrokes and muddy colors dark sexual encounters, the anonymous pain of anxiety, and the specter of alcoholism. There's a reason the general public prefers the the cheerful luncheoners of Renoir or Matisse's colorful landscapes. That is not to deride the general popular taste in art. Indeed, people should not be faulted for being drawn toward art that makes them happy, that allows them to see the brighter sides of life despite all its troubles. Art can be very powerful and therapeutic in that regard. Expressionist art can be challenging for viewers because of this, among other reasons. It does not shy away from distortions, unnatural depictions and colors, and macabre personifications of t- traumas and fears. An even less refined viewer may simply take the simplistic, my kid could paint that, mindset when encountering the works with these elements. But you think, the screen can hardly be called a cheerful painting. It is just as dark as the rest of his output, more arresting even, with the ghostly soul figure looking and emoting directly out at the viewer. This almost alien-looking being, the screamer, can be even amusing to modern eyes, even if Monk would certainly have gasped at such a reaction. He took his art and his mission for it to probe at the human psyche extremely seriously. Of course, what we do or feel toward another artist's production is never going to fully fit the artist's intention. I think the scream resonated with people in the tumultuous early 20th century, when no one quite knew when the speeding progress would come to a head, for many of the same reasons it resonates today. His work has an ultimate relatability about it and the figure's lack of distinguishing characteristics helps with that. It is anyone and everyone's inner angst. Without the intention of getting too political, one could argue that a century later we live in awfully similar times to the original heyday of expressionism. They are times more connected, more fast-moving, and full of many of the same terrors and some new ones. Warming oceans, warlords, weapons of mass destruction, refugees, extremists, terror attacks, automation and artificial intelligence, dictators and demagogues, some a lot closer than we are used to. All of these things come into a head in a time when we are literally bombarded with news of them constantly. It often makes one wonder where the hope can be found. It often makes one want to scream. Whether or not one has the experience with a type of mental illness or personal existential despair that plagued Edward Monk most of his life, one can certainly see a little of the terror we all feel occasionally in The Scream. It is telling of the realities of the modern world that it is the iconic masterpiece of the last century and a half. Her work's fame is a testament to the power of art to express in a work so based off personal pain and emotion that feels so universal. Thank you for listening. As a reminder, don't forget to check out the blog at theartcrimecast.wordpress.com for all the images and links for this episode. The intro music here was Prélude à la Pré-Midi d'Enfant by Claude Debussy and featured as well was Danse Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns and Grieg's In the Hall of the Mountain King.